LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is James Howard Kunstler, who joins us to discuss the current coronavirus crisis and his latest book, Living in a Long Emergency, Global Crisis, The Failure of the Futurists, and the Early Adapters Who Are Showing Us the Way Forward. In his 2005 book, The Long Emergency, Kunstler described the global predicaments that would pitch industrial civilization into political and economic turmoil in the 21st century. The end of affordable oil, climate irregularities and flagging economic growth, to name a few. Now, he returns with a book that takes an up-close and personal approach to how real people are living now, surviving the long emergency as it happens. Living in the long emergency could hardly have been published at a more opportune moment, as governments worldwide and billions of citizens grapple with an unprecedented global crisis. Despite constant words of warning from Kunstler and others, with a similarly keen sense of history and proclivity for joined-up thinking, we remain woefully unprepared for any disruption to the complex systems on which industrial civilization depends. More likely than not, however, we will eventually emerge blinking into the glaring light of an uncertain new dawn. Whether we then change our ways or simply fall back into our former slow death spiral remains to be seen. Hello and welcome, James, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Greg. Now, James, today we're going to be talking about, amongst other things, your latest book, which is entitled Living in the Long Emergency, Global Crisis, the failure of the futurists and the early adapters who are showing us the way forward. Uh, before we dive into that, just give listeners uh, who don't know just a little bit of information about your background and your work in general. Well, I started out as a newspaper reporter. Um, uh, that, that was in the 70s. And I worked for Rolling Stone magazine as an editor uh, in the mid-70s. And uh, I dropped out of that. Um, I didn't like it that much and dropped out to write books. And the program at the time was to write novels if you were an ambitious literary fellow. So I wrote eight novels and uh, didn't get rich, didn't get famous, but got published. Um, and then kind of swung back into journalism and started working for the New York Times magazine. And uh, out of that work, one of the uh, stories I wrote for them turned into a book proposal for The Geography of Nowhere, which was a, um, uh, a rumination on the fiasco of suburbanization, because uh, I had uh, um, come to the conclusion that the suburban fiasco was going to really be a big problem for the United States um, in the years to come. And at the end of that book, I had a consideration of our oil predicament. This was 1993, because it looked like we were heading into uh, some kind of a uh, confrontation uh, with uh, our oil supply. And indeed, that happened. And in the late 90s, uh, many of the senior geologists in the oil industry started publishing their dark thoughts about the oil future in monographs and professional journals. But that was exactly the same time that the web started to gin up. So these things found themselves onto the web. And um, and I started to read them, and I realized that these guys were serious about the story that came to be called Peak Oil. So uh, uh, after that, I, I, I wrote a book called The Long Emergency, which was about peak oil and other problems that we were going to confront, including the problem of pandemic disease. I had a, uh, a pretty comprehensive chapter about that and about Chinese bird flu and other things. 
in that 19, in that 2005 book, The Long Emergency. Um, meanwhile, I published four novels that were a, um, kind of, uh, attempt to depict a post-economic collapse American society in a small town in northeastern USA. And that went under the rubric of the World Made by Hand novel series. And in 2012, I wrote kind of a sequel to The Long Emergency called Too Much Magic, Wishful Thinking, Technology, and the Fate of the Nation. And that was about uh, this kind of transport of uh, techno-narcissism that we had entered after the crash of 2008, about how we were going to uh, keep all our stuff going with um, technological miracles and electric cars and self-driving cars and blah, blah, blah. And... Um, Meanwhile, you know, the shale oil miracle occurred, and that allowed us to kind of keep all of our stuff going for another decade or so. And so I, that, that was becoming obviously another problem that, that we were confronting. And, uh, so then I wrote this new book, Living in the Long Emergency. And a lot of that was concerned with what the nature of shale oil was and how it was likely to fail as a business uh, proposition, and about many of the other disorders of the time. And the book was published in about March, I don't know, March 10th or something officially, just as the Chinese virus was overcoming the world, and just as the um, stock markets all over the world started to crash. In other words, just as it appeared that we were entering some kind of a very serious uh, epical um, failure of systems. So, uh, you know, I guess for once my timing was good, but, it, you know, it's a kind of a sorrowful event for the world. And I think we are entering a new phase of history now. As you describe the the general arc of those three books, uh, that being uh, The Long Emergency, Too Much Magic, and the new one, has been charting the end of this frenzied sort of fossil fuel free-for-all that we've been on uh, for the last hundred years or so and the, how the industrial civilization would unwind. And this current crisis really illustrates a couple of things. One, of course, the, the potential for, um, epidemics and pandemics, you know, causes being various, but just how, uh, you know, interconnected globalization w would, um, affect the spread of them. But also in a more general way, this is just one example of a case that how governments will respond, what sort of measures governments will respond, uh, you know, lockdowns, other draconian control measures. And we're seeing a, um, a lot of the things that governments around the world are doing now could also be done in response to other things, but it just so happens right now we're seeing it in response to uh, this coronavirus. So as you say, it, it, tragically, very timely. Well, we've never seen anything like this in the uh, in the advanced world in my lifetime. You know, we've never seen all, you know, uh, a, a great array of nations being in a state of lockdown. And we've never been in a situation where the rather uh, fragile global economy all of a sudden hit a giant speed bump. And uh, in effect, production has stopped all over the world. And uh, everything connected with that production, including, you know, trade and uh, all of the normal professions and vocations that have to go on and, and the things that they depend on. And it's an absolutely extraordinary situation. I, I mean, the only thing that I can imagine really uh, would be some kind of a, you know, a wartime scenario of, and a very extreme one. Because the last time uh, our countries were in a, a big war... Um, even, uh, you know, regular commerce did not shut down and the bars stayed open. So, you know, this is just something that, that is uh, all new for us. And, um, it's obviously very traumatic and it's really hard to calculate what the effect of that trauma is going to be. Um, it's certain one effect is already clear is that, you know, the disorder in our lives is making people a bit crazy. And we, we over here in, in the USA were pretty crazy before it started. Uh, our political scene had, had become pretty crazy. And I dare say yours in the UK, uh, had become pretty crazy too, based on what I've seen about the, um, extreme identity politics of the UK, uh, which I count as a, you know, a kind of, uh, pathology.
Well, yeah, and it's, as you say, we've seen crises comparable in some ways before. You know, Spanish flu, as you mentioned, countries on a wartime footing where life is, is, is almost completely changed. But as the decades gone by and everything's become more inter- interconnected, more complicated, more ramped up, um, more globalized, then every time a stress on the system, one part of the system is placed like this, the more it ripples across and the, and the larger the, the, the blowback seems to be and also the pace of movement. I mean, we're literally hour by hour, sometimes minute by minute, if you're following this. I, I mean, I don't see how anybody actually wanting to follow this globally could keep up uh, with the, the, the number of changes that are happening across a number of different dimensions. Yeah, um, I had to go on an errand today that was uh, something I, I just couldn't dismiss because my computer broke down, uh, broke down hard. And I really didn't know from the time I uh, left the house to the time I got back, you know, whether uh, the governor of New York would shut down New York State because there's been chatter about that. And it, it happened in California over the last 48 hours. So, you know, I didn't even know if the, if the state would be shut down. And that, that's how fast events are moving. Well, and, uh, you know, it, it's just very, very strange to uh, uh, just travel across the land and see everything that's shut down. And uh, I don't I didn't even really dare go into a gas station and get a cup of coffee on the way back. The latest thing to happen here, like, you know, as as of 10 minutes ago, um, before we began to speak, was that the UK government had announced that all schools in England I think Scotland or Wales, it's already happened, uh, are going to close for the foreseeable future. Now, yeah. that's a big step for people here in the UK because although the similar sorts of things have been happening, for example, in Italy, my, my other half is Italian, so I've been getting frontline news about what's been happening over there. And they've been in quite a comprehensive lockdown now for weeks with the gains and losses that they perceive or doing yeah. that, you know, but it's just, as you say, it's just such a fluid situation. And when I tried to think about this happening in the US, I just thought about what you always have to throw into the mix in the US. I don't care whether you're pro or anti-gun, but you have to throw guns into the mix, you know, <laughs> <laughs> if you see what I mean. In terms of someone, I read it, I, somebody told me about a story and it was just one little vignette. And it was somewhere in the in the US when they had uh, an outbreak, and there was locally it was like, okay, guys, you got to stay in your homes. You're only coming out for the following reasons. And this one guy in the street just refused to stay in his house, and they had to post a police officer at the end of his yard, you know, just basically to make sure he stayed because he would not stay in the house. Now you only have to have one situation like that where the guy comes out of his house with his gun and says, "I'm coming out." Yeah, but uh, let's not forget that Europeans are quite capable of violent mischief on their own. You know, we've seen, I mean, just think of the things that we've seen in uh, France and, and Germany and the UK uh, and, and other countries since uh, all those Syrian and Middle East immigrants came across the Mediterranean. And, you know, you, you have nightclubs being blown up and auditoriums being stormed with uh, automatic weapons and uh you know knife attacks and people driving vans into christmas fairs you know there's no shortage of an ability to make mischief there um you know in america uh it's hard to say if this is not characteristic of everybody who is now you know uh in an advanced western country but uh it seems to me that americans tend to live more as if they're in a TV show or a movie, you know that that their their um, grasp on reality is perhaps a bit more tenuous than other people <laughs> in other lands. So uh, there's plenty of room for mischief. I actually haven't seen any sign yet of any kind of uh, you know insurrection against the government or anything like that. People here are, are taking it pretty uh, calmly. Mm-hmm. And going, you know, doing what they can. But, you know, they've only been in, you know, in the case of California and maybe one or two other places, some cities, New York City, they've only been under lockdown for, you know, 48 hours or less. So God knows what happens after, you know, three weeks if it continues. Well, I know in Italy, they've, you know, people have been going kind of quietly and seeing sort of like, the, you know, talking to their friends over Skype or whatever, saying yes, I want to kill everybody in my family, you know, because they've been in oh, there well. with for weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, in the same in the same place. Yeah. But, but equally, if you go out 
onto the streets. Apparently, they're, they've mustered enough police for the for the sufficient presence to be there, so that it's like, okay, where's your permission to be out? You haven't got any. Two hundred euro fine. Slap. There you go. Uh, people are very, very cautious about being out when they're not supposed to be. Well, of course, the whole physical layout of life in European towns and cities is so much different because in America we have this just tremendous, uh, just vast amount of ambiguous, nebulous, suburban uh, nowhereville where all kinds of things happen, you know, and people can, you know, it's just not as easy to control. And uh, I can see that becoming a problem here for us you know, before too long. But it really depends how much uh, people are suffering. There there were an awful lot of people in the United States who, uh, you know, as the saying goes, don't have $400 to cobble together for a domestic emergency, like a, their car breaking down or, or a child getting sick. Because in America, you know, we have the a kind of a health racketeering system. And, um, you know, th- those people... Uh, there are, must be many among them who were not well prepared to be locked down for any period of time, and God knows what's going to happen when they get hungry and desperate. So uh, we'll see about that. Well, I'm told, again, there might be people listening to this and say, oh, you know, I know better than you, you're wrong on this, well, whatever. I'm told that in Italy, when they were saying, okay, no, you're not going to bars, restaurants, cafes anymore, theaters, but people working in these places, whatever, are continuing to get paid, and that makes it sort of enforceable. It makes it feasible for the short term. In the UK, it's kind of a hybrid. A couple of days ago, we were all instructed to avoid these sorts of places. But what that meant was that if a bar owner or cafe owner goes out of business, then the government doesn't really have to pay them any insurance or anything like that. It's like, oh, sorry, you know, people didn't come. So it's a weird halfway house. It doesn't really satisfy anybody. It doesn't stop people going to bars, but it doesn't help the bar owner if people don't go. So yeah. I'm just wondering, in the US, if you, what, how would you imagine that panning out if the government, well, I don't know if it would, if it would happen. Well, you can see it panning out. It's already panning out in the sense that um, there are many places that have banned uh, restaurants and bars and public gathering places from opening. And the uh, the federal government, under Mr. Trump, has already started to make plans to, um, you know, cover their pay and provide uh, uh, loans for the small businesses and at, you know, very uh, relaxed terms and, and try to find some way to uh, help them through this. So there's going to be some support there. We're probably going to err on this, on the end of throwing too much money at every facet of this. And that's already begun. And, uh, you know, we're, we are now in the range of throwing trillions of dollars uh, against this problem, including a whole lot at the banking system, which has already been bailed out once, you know, in, in 2008, and we're preparing to bail it out again. Um, so that's going to cause further distortions and perversions of the uh, monetary system and the markets and uh you know, it's going to create further problems down the road that will ultimately probably be expressed as a currency crisis would be my guess in one way or another. Um, the Europeans are not out of the woods on this at all because they have more uh, systemically important banks, as they're called, than the USA does. And uh, there, there's much more trouble in the European banking system. And, and I think it's one of the reasons that the euro is down uh, to a dollar eight today, and the dollar is up. I have a feeling that an awful lot of European money is fleeing Europe at the moment. Uh, and so, is there any way that this crisis could have been used or interpreted or seen as an as an opportunity to favor the real economy over the financialized economy and the banking sector? It's like if money must be doled out, at least give it to people who have got businesses and livelihoods and um, st- a stake in the real economy and not just adding more to this, I mean, which you cover in the book very, very well, just this unbelievable, you know, planetary sized mass of global debt, which can never be paid back just to further aggravate that. Or is that just no longer possible? 
Well, I think that you were asking me uh, at the beginning whether or not this was some kind of a teachable moment, as they as they say in in the PC world. Yeah, I, I I don't see it as that. I mean, it it is an emergency that we're going to emergently struggle through one way or another. The real question is how much disorder does it produce, and where does that disorder manifest? And one of the things that is quite clear, and we could have easily seen this in advance, was that it ma- it would manifest in the financial sector and in the banking sector because. That is the part of our world that is composed of the most abstract kind of uh, um, relations. And uh, so it, it ends up being the most fragile. You know, it's it's a system that's based largely on promises to do this and that, promises to pay back money that you've borrowed, promises to pay people money that you owe them. And so it's a very fragile part of our world, and naturally it's it's the it's the first one to um, explode spectacularly, and that's what's happening uh, today. You know, in the United States, the equity markets have had a thousand dollar plus up and down days every day, practically for the last uh, you know ten days, and uh, you know we went down a record three thousand points on I guess Monday, and then we had a rally of about um, I don't know over a thousand yesterday and now we're back down close to 2000 in the afternoon as we speak so that's flying apart the uh 200 uh trillion dollar plus two, 200 uh, uh plus trillion dollars of debt that is out there in the world uh is an enormous problem that's perhaps insurmountable by any normal means we can imagine and it too seems to be imploding now and sending out the signal that uh the system just could not bear that load anymore and uh you know i i've i've written all along and been saying in my blogs that um the expression of all of these disorders in finance and banking was probably going to be the most damaging uh part of this crisis, you know, apart from the possibility of war or, you know, violent conflict between groups of people. And that's exactly what's happening. Uh, what's really behind it is the simple fact that we have layered too many, uh, we've, we've put too many layers of hyper complexity over each other. And, uh, you know, that sim- the system can't bear that complexity. And now it's all kind of cratering. It remains to be seen what parts of it can be put back together when the dust settles. And, uh, you know, the banking uh, system and the monetary system is one part, of course. But then there's the very, uh, or, or much more real part of, uh, global affairs, which has to do with manufacturing stuff and trading stuff. And it remains to be seen whether we're going to put together those, uh, manufacturing and trade lines again. You know, uh, it's very clear in America that there, there's at least some of it that we don't want to put back together because we found ourselves hostage to it and we don't want to be hostage to it. And, you know, the one of the most obvious ones now is the pharmaceutical sector, which we offloaded onto China. And now that there's so much ill will between the USA and China, uh, you know, they're making a lot of noises like they, they're not going to give us our pharmaceuticals. And, uh, you know, won't that be uh, a grand thing uh, for a lot of people? So, uh, you know, th- th- that's sort of the, the basic outline, I think, of, uh, of where we are short of other, you know, black swans and, uh, and bad turns that, that have not yet emerged. Okay, well, I mean, so much for what's happening currently. We can, we can return to that. But <clears throat> what I want to mention is, uh, you were saying that you know when when the rubble stops bouncing, as it were, you know what what will we be looking at when the dust clears? Uh, one thing we will still be facing is our general predicament, the one that you've been writing about all this time, our dependency on fossil fuels and the industrial civilization we built with those, and what's happening to that as the fossil fuels become depleted. Uh, early on in the book, you mentioned that uh, you can correct me if I haven't got this quite right that uh, 30 years ago in the U.S., something like 89% of the electricity supply came 
derived from burning fossil fuels. And today it's something like 85%. Now, this is in the, the context of thinking about renewables and how we change our energy balance. Uh, the idea being is how we're going to live in the future. So it was 30 years, in 30 years, it's been reduced from 89 to 85. Now, what does that say about our ability to reduce it to some of these, uh, you know, green sky thinking figures that get thrown around these days? Like in the UK, for example, you know, carbon neutral by 2040 or whatever. It says to me that we, uh, we're looking at a whole matrix of wishful thinking, uh, that, uh, it's, uh, just goes very deep and, and broad over the whole picture. And, uh, I, I thought since I wrote The Long Emergency and said so in that book, that there was, uh, at least one fundamental problem that I didn't believe we could overcome, which was that, uh, and, and this is something that the green folk don't really take into account which is you know we really need a a platform of a fossil fuel economy underneath the green economy in order to even manufacture the hardware for the green economy you know how how are we supposed to manufacture all these uh wind turbines and solar panels and all of this uh very complicated hardware uh you know without the energy to do it and it's not going to come from the you know we're not it's not it's not going to be like uh, the uh, uh, the alternatives powering the manufacture of more alternatives. That's just not going to happen that way. There isn't enough of it. So you could see that kind of point of failure from you know 25 years out. But uh, we, you know we wanted to tell ourselves a bunch of fairy stories in the USA. The idea that we could we could save suburbia if we could just get all the cars electrified. And, you know, create a charging system and, and, uh, an awful lot of people, of course, it never occurred to them that the energy that was going to come out of that plug in the wall was actually made by doing something like burning coal. Um, but, you know, that was part of the, the delusion of the, all that. So, you know, none of that stuff is where we're going, in my opinion. I, I think that where we're going is pretty clear, but it's pretty unacceptable to most of the people in the advanced countries. And that is, you know, we're going to have to seriously downscale our activities. We're going to probably have to relocalize our activities and we're going to have to make them more redundant and as they get smaller because any kind of an ecosystem, uh, including an economic ecosystem of businesses, really thrives uh, when the activities are re when there are many redundant activities so that you know there are many different uh, players carrying the ball and that when one of them goes down somebody else picks it up you know that's that's what happens in forest ecologies and that's what happens in animal ecologies and and uh, it's pretty clear so we've made this real bad choice of making everything gigantic and kind of a monoculture or a monopoly of one kind or another. And that's particularly irksome in the United States in our commercial economy where, you know, we have so many giant uh, uh, retail sellers of th various things. And when they become dysfunctional for one reason or another, or another, for instance, if the supply lines from China, you know, put an end to their merchandise, uh, resupply, you know, what are they going to do? And, uh, you know, uh, the food, the food system is a big part of that. And, uh, we're going to have to produce more of our food locally and not depend on, you know, getting all this fruit from the Southern hemisphere in the, in our winter time and, uh, and, and things like that. We're going to have to, um, uh, downscale our agriculture. So it's not so it doesn't follow that agribusiness model, which is also a you know a model of a huge behemoth uh, monoculture um, that is oil based, and also you know a lot of people forget that uh, farming, uh, at least as it's done in the United States, um, one of the biggest so-called inputs for farming is is money. Uh, the, the farmers have to borrow. These, these farmers on these giant farms in uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin and Iowa, you know, they have to borrow uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to get their crop in. 
And then they have to use all these petrochemicals to, you know, to make the crops grow. And it's really a, um, a, a wickedly bad system, and it's going to fail in the face of the things that, that we're confronting. So the farms are going to have to get smaller. They're going to have to be distributed more equitably <laughs> around the country. There, it will probably require more human labor and more human attention as this uh, emerges and evolves. You know, more people will be working in agriculture. Another feature of this for the United States, and I don't know exactly how it applies to Britain or, or the UK, but uh, there are a lot of parts of the United States where you can't grow stuff locally. Mm-hmm. And that suggests to me that a lot of places like Tucson and uh, Pasadena, you know, and, and uh, uh, Phoenix and, you know, parts of Texas, uh, they're not going to be able to... Uh, uh, gin up any kind of uh, food production system in these places and a lot of these places don't even have a, a uh, water supply that's reliable you know without some sort of artificial uh, means so I think a lot of these places are going to be depopulated and it's going to be a, a big deal uh, they may not go down to zero but you know they're, they're, they're going to become much smaller places indeed you know I would make the argument that all all giant metroplex cities, as they're called, around the world are going to be faced with this predicament and are going to have to get smaller one way or another and probably will, and that the um, process will be pretty disorderly. And if you want to talk about that, we can, but I'll, I'll shut up for now. Uh, there's so many mixed messages that have been coming out of uh, governments in industrialized countries, particularly in recent times, but you know, over the last few decades, since the problems with fossil fuels started to become more than a sort of an academic academic debate and start the, the problems started to actually manifest themselves in the real world. For example, they, they'd be, oh, carbon neutral by, I'm talking about the UK now, the government going, oh, carbon neutral by 2040, whether, you know, all um, conventional petrol uh, cars off the road by 2050. Uh, in the meantime, uh, let's put another runway on Heathrow Airport. Let's build HS. <laughs> let's build HS2, which for people who don't know is a massive infrastructure real project planned to uh, link London right through the, the heart of England, right up into the north. It's a massive, massive billion, billion, billion pound project and a major white elephant. So they're saying that that's necessary for growth. Uh, of the you know economy, but at the same time we must decarbonize, we must go green, and these two things are obviously incompatible. So it'll be interesting to see. At the minute, we're just in the you know the maybe not even in the eye of the storm yet. I suspect we're not, but when this all shakes out, whether there's if we do get back to a new normal, even if it's a step down normal, if it's something that looks a bit like normal, whether any of that will change appreciably, because sometimes they do. You know, we sort of get. The message is like onwards and upwards all the time, techno-utopia in the stars. But every now and again, we get whacked so hard that it's like, you know, we don't quite get back to where we were before. And then at some point, we'll stagger along and get whacked again. And we don't quite get back to it. Now, it's that kind of step-down process. Yeah, so. well, that's John Michael Greer's uh, step-down yeah. descent, you know. And I think he was largely correct about that. I, I always admired that point of view. So, but that, that, that's why I'm wondering if, if the, you know, the mixed messages always used to get me because, for example, just yesterday in the middle, having me told that my place of work is closed for the foreseeable future, I took a train journey and passed through the heart of Manchester, one of the big former industrial cities, still one of the biggest cities in the north of England, and left, right, as you, as a train made its way into the main terminal, the cranes in the skyline, the construction, you know, yeah. apartments, accommodation for Chinese students, uh, all of that just continues apace. And of course, it's not going to stop in 24 hours, but it really brings your mind to focus, I think, when you're looking at that stuff and then feeling what you're feeling in the middle of this. Oh, it's a gruesome spectacle. You know, I, I get the same feeling when I go down to New York City and I see all those cranes hoisting the giant skyscrapers. And, uh, you know, I came to some, some conclusions about that a while ago and, uh, I, I talked about them in Too Much Magic and also in the new book, Living in the Long Emergency. These, these projects that we did, you know, they're, they're gonna overnight be converted from assets to liabilities especially the skyscrapers, the tall buildings. 
And I'll tell you why. Uh, you know, a lot of people think that it's because, oh, the, the heat and the air conditioning and the uh, elevators are going to require so much energy. That's not really it. The, the problem is, is that they will not have any capacity for adaptive reuse. And if you can't do that with the buildings in the city, then you're not going to have a city that can emergently, you know, reorganize and adapt and, and, and grow according, or not, 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 not even necessarily grow, but adapt according to new circumstances. So, uh, you know, a lot of the green talk about, um, uh, the, the, a lot of the green talk that you were, uh, describing about, uh, carbon, uh, neutral taxes and, and arrangements, you know, you really have to write that off simply as just political virtue signaling. It's no more complicated than that. And it's at odds with that, the, 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 with the basic problem of facing uh, a world that is not going to know the kind of economic growth in uh, um, quotation marks growth that made the last uh, you know ten decades possible because we are now going into a period of comprehensive contraction and we're not going to be able to make uh, we're not going to be able to grow largely because the um, the picture on the energy return on energy produced is uh, changing, and it's the the ratio has simply gotten too low. We're not we're not getting enough back for the amount of energy that we're putting into it, and that kind of prangs the whole system. So uh, our system really depends utterly on the the quality of the energy inputs that come in, and and um, how cheap the, they they can be. And we're leaving that era of cheap energy behind. And the institutions and structures that we've erected, the financial structures especially, um, cannot survive a period of no growth because uh, what no growth really says is that the debt will never be repaid and that the whole system ends up being a Ponzi scheme. And what happens to Ponzi schemes, unfortunately, is they collapse. And sometimes they collapse pretty catastrophically all at once. And uh, I, I think we must be uh, dazzled and alarmed and very impressed at the speed that the current collapse uh, is, is, is going through or appears to be going through for now. You know, who knows? Maybe it'll all turn around in two weeks, but I kind of doubt it. I think that the damage is, uh, that a lot of damage has already been done, especially psychologically. You know, America is not going to continue to uh, uh, engage in these trade arrangements with China that we've had. You know, we're, we're going to be forced uh, to at least think about how we're going to make stuff again in North America. And, you know, the problem with that, as I just said, is that the, the you know, the basic energy uh, economics has changed to the degree that it's not going to be 1960 again. We're not going to make things like that again. We may be reduced in scale to the shocking degree that we have to depend on water power and hydroelectric just to make a few things. I mean, you can make things with hydroelectric and you can make things with direct water power. But, you know, you're talking about going back to a kind of, uh, you know, uh, an 1883 level of, uh, uh, of an industrial economy if you're lucky. And uh, these are ideas that I don't think most uh, thinking people in the advanced economies are ready to entertain. No, you mentioned psychology there, and that's one of the most important dimensions. Before we close out, I was going to ask you about, you know, we're going to get to like what, what, what now, you know, what can we do what, to be positive? You know, what can people listening to this do? But now that we've touched upon psychology, that can be, that can make the difference between survival or not in a stress situation. I think whether it's a, you know, an immediate fight or flight, you know, you're being chased by a mugger. Or whether it's something a little bit more medium term, uh, near term, like what we're looking at now. And I'm dismayed to say, but not surprised to say, I mean, already see, albeit very low level, very manageable, but just the initial signs of just total irrationality when it comes to behavior of members of the public. You know, it still looks pretty much the same when you look out the window, but yeah. starting to see, starting to see that, you know, cracks at the edges, let's put it like that. 
Well, it's really only been a couple of weeks that the problem really came on the world's radar screen, and in mm. the West anyway. And, I mean, here we are really only about five days into this thing, uh, you know, for uh, for the USA anyway. And uh, it, it's it's just overwhelmingly fresh and scary. And, you know, I, I live in a pretty quiet corner of the USA in what we call upstate New York. I'm about 200 miles north of uh, New York City and about... 200 miles west of Boston and equally south of Montreal. So it's pretty rural here. Uh, the small towns are the flyover places where the economy actually died uh, uh, quite, you know, a number of decades ago. So people have gotten used to hardship of, a ver of, of various kinds. Um, but they have been able to um, survive on government largesse and the dole and, and things like that disability payments from from our social security um i, I don't know how, i don't know what's going to happen with those folks when they uh you know when they really get desperate and if this thing goes on for a matter of weeks and uh i think that there's a pretty good chance that we may not really be able to conduct an american election this fall it's it's a possibility it would be pretty harsh if that happened but uh uh, who knows? You know, it's it's possible. Um, well, I I certainly think that uh, I certainly think that there's even a greater percentage chance that the party nominating conventions may not be able to take place because generally they take place in the early summer. And for all we know, this problem's still going to be around. Well, one of the first things that um, I noticed that probably most people didn't really pay much attention to in the news here was local council and mayoral elections postponed for one year one year yeah. and I, there was one local mayor on the radio just going well you know my wife's not well and i was retiring this year and i was going to look after her and now i've been told i'm going to do this for another year and the, the guy interviewing said well can't you just walk away say that's it i quit and he said well yeah but i'm thinking about the community because he's talked about he said the cost of staging a new uh, campaign. He said that's going to involve everything that we're trying to avoid by postponing the elections for a year. But my main thinking was, wow, just like that, no elections, yeah. no elections, elections, no. You're not having. Never mind cafes and bars, no elections. Well, I think that what you're saying is that these things tend to thunder through a culture and thunder through a society and an economy, and uh, that's that's what we're seeing and the, there's no telling how many arrangements that we're used to are going to be upset and i imagine quite a few of them and uh, in the process they will probably mutually reinforce each other's fragilities and so that's another problem with hyper complexity so what, what we're seeing and what we seem to be facing is a kind of a you know comprehensive systems failure and there's quite a bit we understand about systems and system failure. So um, it's not as though we, we can't figure out what's happening to us. It's more a question of what we're going to do. And as I said, um, the direction that uh, that circumstances are pointing us into are get smaller, get local, uh, and downscale what you're doing. And uh, unfortunately, if we spend too much of our remaining capital of every kind – propping up hyper-complex arrangements that really can't be kept up under any circumstances. You know, instead of using what capital we have left to rearrange life in advanced societies, then, you know, we're going to have a problem. It's, in some ways, um, Europe is in a somewhat better situation than the USA because, for the most part, you didn't suburbanize your your cities as much as we did, and your towns are still intact but ours are really uh in, in a very bad state and we have all of this suburban fabric all over the continent of north america that simply won't be uh, uh a viable living arrangement or business arrangement or a way to you know for humans to to inhabit the landscape we have no idea what we're going to do about it and it represents a tremendous uh problem of previous investment because now that we've sunk all of our, you know, uh, uh, all of our treasure into constructing this arrangement for daily life, we're not going to want to let go of it. That's a big predicament for us. 
<clears throat> one of the most vexing things about the current situation with regard to the pandemic is people forcibly being isolated from each other. And one of the things that helps people get through tough times is coming together. And in many ways, you can see these people all individually trapped in their little box apartments, um, not able to go out is almost like a hyper extension of the trend that was happening anyway. You know, people stay, yeah. staying in on their own. Uh, so yeah. it's ironic at the minute when pe- a lot of people are talking about community spirit and social support that, you know, people are being kept apart like that. It's, it's great, great irony. Yeah, it's a tragic irony. Um, I feel it very keenly because uh, the way things have uh, kind of worked out in my corner of the world, most of my social life revolves around playing music with other people. Um, I play in a couple of string bands, Celtic string bands and a contradance band, uh, which is kind of like English line dancing. And I play in a rock and roll band and uh, none of us are getting together. Um, I, I feel fortunate because, uh, you know, I'm using the time alone to, you know, I, I moved my my electric piano upstairs and I, I returned to piano studies that I gave up 20 years ago and, you know, back to sight reading and, and all that. And that's been pretty rewarding. And, you know, I'm playing my other instruments, uh, and trying to get better at them in the meantime. But, and that's a, you know, that, that's really something, that's a resource that a human being can fall back on. You know, the people who can't do that, you know, they're going to run out of Netflix movies to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's a dimension of the, uh, psychology I was speaking about a moment ago. You know, what, what, what people's resources are internally. Um, yeah. to, to deal with this, forgetting how much, you know, toilet paper they have, you know, how much, you know, how much mental toilet paper have you got? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, <clears throat> so to speak. One of the most interesting responses, but when I noticed it entirely, it made sense. It was predictable, uh, to this was, and it was on somewhere on social media and it was some organization such as the Post Growth Institute. And they were waving a little flag and saying, Hey folks, what about looking as this, you know, as maybe what we need to do, how the world needs to be, how it could be, what it might have to be. That is to say, you know, deindustrialization, less people with less stuff doing less things or different things, local, less frenzied, all of the above. And that just from their point of view, and I thought it was interesting, and I don't think anyone was really paying attention, but it was just they, they saw a kind of a chink there and just thought, you know, there, this is could be a window onto, you know, a more positive vision of the world? Well, yeah. Um, I, I think the more likely way that these things work out uh, follows uh, what, what the philosopher Kierkegaard said about new ideas. He said, uh, you know, new ideas, or you could uh, substitute new situations, uh, are first greeted uh, with uh, ridicule, then violently opposed, and then accepted as self-evident. So I think that we're going to see quite a bit of that in this. You know, uh, it also kind of follows the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, uh, spectrum of, uh, you know, how people behave psychologically in the face of uh, death and, and tragedy, which is, you know, they they at first deny it and then they get mad about it and then they uh, get depressed about it and finally they accept it. You know, to me, as I said, the the direction that we need to go in is probably pretty clear, and I hope we can direct our our social capital and other capital to uh, downscaling and 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 decomplexifying and simplifying uh, life in the civilized nation, so we can continue to be civilized. Uh, you do touch upon this briefly in the book. Now, you talk, of course, about technology and over complexity, or you know, high complexity excessive layers of complexity upon complexity and how all that, you know, complexity is used to solve problems caused by complexity, et cetera, et cetera, and where all that ends up. But uh, there's a particular dimension of technology that you address in the book, which I've got a particular interest in, and which is the mania for artificial intelligence and space technology and where, you know, human augmentation, life extension, this whole subset, which involves very, very few people, but it gets a lot of headlines um, yeah. you know, whether it's people like Ray Kurzweil with his transhumanist thing or Elon Musk with his like, what does he want? A million people on Mars by 2050, I think was the latest. All of that. I mean, I've always been very interested in technology, uh, you know, robotics, the possibilities of AI 
And from when I was a child, I looked up at the, the, the night sky and been endlessly fascinated about possibilities. But where we are right now, I, I think I've got a handle on what we've done so far and what we may be able to do in future or not, you know, with, with all the various um, constraints facing us. And there's a little point that you make in the book, essentially, that you know, all this sort of techno-narcissistic stuff, all these agendas, are in a sort of race with the economic collapse that we're talking about. Now, it's almost like trying to get this done, trying to get um, AI sufficiently developed and in a sort of an unstoppable curve so that this economic collapse and decay almost won't matter. Somehow the idea being that, you know, if we can upload mines or get somebody to Mars, it'll, it'll profoundly affect uh, our predicament on Earth. Well, you know, the, the stuff that is, the part of that that isn't laughable is just scary. Um, the laughable part is going to Mars. Uh, the, the idea that we need to um, start colonizing other planets when we haven't even demonstrated that we're capable of living on a planet that is perfectly suited for our uh, species. So uh, that's insane. And uh, all the practical problems having to do with go going that far and supporting human life at that such a distance are just absurd. You know, that, that ain't going to happen. We're just, uh, you know, we're just uh, playing games with ourselves about that. Uh, the AI stuff, uh, I think, is, uh, you know, probably a bit more, maybe a bit more probable. But uh, that seems to me to be some really um, dangerous mischief, and I hope we don't get there. I think we probably won't. Uh, I think that this may be nature's way of telling us to take a time out from our technological adventures and forcing us to take a time out and reflect on where we've been and, and what we've done and, and uh, uh, give us some time to... Uh, maybe come up with uh, another way of uh, managing human life. I, I think we're going to get it good and hard, and, and it's going to uh, change a lot of things. Remember, you know, when the Romans left Britain, uh, the Britons forgot how to make pottery and stopped bathing. Civilizations can grind, grind down pretty quickly. I, I, I kind of think that we're heading into a, a period of human history that might be called neo-medieval. Uh, if we're lucky, it'll be, uh, you know... Uh, neo-medieval with perhaps some uh, artificial lighting so we can do things at night at home. And uh, uh, But I think that's sort of our destination. And uh, the, the rest of this techno-narcissism is just us, you know, um, diddling ourselves. And, and uh, now that we're in an emergency, I think that we're going to uh, sooner rather than later probably get more real about what we're doing. That's an interesting combination of terms used there, mentioning neo-medieval, but also mentioning the, the Roman Empire. Uh, someone might say yeah. they look back at you know ancient Rome, ancient Greece, Egypt, and say those in their own way were great civilizations in their time. And look at what they built, look what they achieved without fossil fuels, um, without industrialization. But was all that just down to well, yeah, but it was it was it was human slaves that did that. That's right, but it was, but it's staggeringly impressive. You know, I I, I remember being in uh, southern France two years ago, swimming in the river uh, under the Pont de Garde, and uh, the Pont de Garde is this awesome Roman aqueduct and and bridge that goes across the Garde River, and the you know the scale of it is just stupendous. Uh, it's it's very. Uh, it's it's rather painful to try to place yourself in the imagination of uh, a person living in the dark ages, seeing the ruins of all these things around them. And, and by the way, in the year 800, a lot of these things that are ruins today were still in much better condition than they are now. So, you know, imagine a, a medieval peasant in Normandy or, or, or you know, anywhere in continental Europe, you know, seeing all this stuff and um, just thinking that a race of giants must have produced it. And we're liable to find ourselves in a similar kind of situation where our descendants look around at, you know, at the skyscrapers that we left behind and the bridges that we left behind and they just won't be able to conceive of how we possibly built all that stuff. 
Well, science fiction is stuffed with uh, narratives like that, isn't it? And yeah, it's, pe- true, it's true. It's not an original thought, and I apologize for that. <laughs> no, no, I, what I simply meant was that, that, that people's response, quite often they're tempted to respond by, well, yeah, but, you know, we've got a, a, such a detailed record of what happened in our age, and if it, you know, if it does decline, well, people will be able to read all the books and look at all the multimedia and stuff, but that, well, mm. <laughs> Well, look how little of the Roman Empire actually did survive in writing, So so little of it. As a matter of fact, you know, the Romans must have had a very complex uh, music culture. There's no record of what, what their music sounded like. We, we, you know, they didn't have musical notation. We don't have any scores of R- Roman music. We have no, you know, we have no idea what it sounded like. And it's all lost. And, uh, you know, the libraries of the Roman Empire were destroyed, and very, very few of their scrolls or manuscripts really made it through to the Renaissance to be copied and, uh, you know, and, and brought back to life. And I don't know, I, I, I can see a very similar thing happening with us. It's, it's a, to me, quite a tragedy that the university libraries in the USA made a decision about 10 years ago to get rid of a lot of their books and go electronic and digital because I, I don't have a whole lot of confidence that that digital information is necessarily going to survive or be replayable in in the future. That That is the key. And I suppose you're, you know, like 500 years from now, you're some young kid out playing in some waste ground and, you know, you're, you find, see something shiny in the dust and you dig up this, <laughs> like, you dig up this, like, disc you know, a this, CD. Yeah, exactly. This circular disc, and you look and you see your face in one side, and you kind of, you know, you take it home and you ask your dad what it is, and he doesn't know. And but you know, maybe granddad knows, and granddad goes, "I, you know <laughs> what? I, I heard about something like this." Yeah, and so what do we do? Uh, we put a piece of cord in it, and we hang it in amongst the berries to keep the birds away. And, well, that's uh, exactly what I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but the point is that the information on there doesn't get retrieved. You know. So. Yeah. Sure. As we. Uh, begin to bring things to a close for today. It's just a couple of points I wanted to ask you about. Um, one is population, um, because again, it's something that a lot of people don't want to talk about, whether it's population growth, but particularly population reduction. But if we look medium to long term at the sort of contractions you're talking about, it means less people. Now, for a lot of people, they immediately get, whether they're pro or um, really nervous about population reduction. They start to think about mass die-offs, pandemics, for example, uh, war, famine, and these things have, you know, been part of human history throughout the past. No doubt they'll continue to be what we like to think. But the sort of population reduction I'm thinking about is less people being born, and this is commensurate with an end of, you know, exponential growth on a finite planet, but it's still something that people don't want to talk about because on one hand, people will say, oh, you know, there's too many people were being overrun and 7 billion, 8 billion, where's it going to end? But if you say, well, what about your own hometown? You know, look at Detroit. You know, what about your own hometown being 200,000? Now it's 180. 10 years from now, it's 100. You know, there's something unsettling about that for people. Yeah, um, I can understand why. And um, I don't think that we're going... I think that if we are in a period of pretty gross disorder, that uh, population control is not going to be, you know, a something that we manage in any kind of systematic way. We, we didn't even, we weren't even able to manage it when uh, at the height of industrial civilization, when everything was stable. So we're certainly not going to manage it when everything is in flux. Uh, I, I imagine that the you know the various horsemen are going to all be there riding down the plain, and uh, you know that's that's all very possible. There's it's likely that there will be people starving, and and it's possible that we'll have uh, some kind of uh, continue to have kind of wars and fights over resources. And uh, disease is certainly another issue, and um, we're going to have to face those, uh, you know, clear-headedly. We'll see what happens. I don't think that there, there's really no kind of uh, feel-good story about that. Um, you know, we're going to get to where we're going to get to, um, uh, emergently, and, and you know, history ha- has a way of doing what it wants to do with us. Maybe a last thought is that, you know, your book is very bold in its assessment of where we've come from, where we are, where you feel that we're headed, you know, backed up yeah. by a lot of evidence. But 
it, your book is, is definitely not without hope. And one of the, the centerpiece of the book, which we have not actually talked about, and people should buy the book, is stories of individuals who you've come to know over the years. And these are the early adapters in the book's title. And whether they're talking about their, thinking about their lives going forward with in terms of location, how they're going to feed themselves, what skills they have, what they're going to do for money, um, their dependencies and their dependents, their social network. Um, are they in any condition to adapt to the changes coming down the line? These individual stories are at the heart of your book. And I just want to ask how you, how you went about choosing these stories or did they choose you and what, what did you how was that journey for you because i think you went and visited with all these individuals didn't you to speak to them oh yeah i traveled around the united states to visit with these people um i think almost all of them in one way or another were people who had contacted me or corresponded with me because they um perceived that we were on on the edge of uh, big changes in culture society and economy and they had made choices in their lives that were very different from the conventional pathways of most people. So, you know, one of these people is uh, a young man, well, he's about 35, I guess now, who uh, uh, started out in uh, uh, journalism and worked in the historic preservation uh, corporate uh, world for a while. And he dropped out to become a farmer and a distiller in Vermont, of all things. And so he's happily up on his farm now in Cabot, Vermont, growing um, uh, uh, growing a, an heirloom kind of corn and distilling it into whiskey. And he's an interesting dude. Um, there's a woman who I thought was especially uh, resourceful and brave, um, Suzanne Sloman up in Waitsfield, Vermont, and she's a baker, and she's been working at building this baking business for 25 years, and uh, having to shut it down and reopen it and move, to, move it to different places around New York and Vermont during all that time. And I just thought that the, you know, the story of her pluck and resourcefulness would be interesting to readers. And um, there, were all, there, were all, there were a couple of homesteaders in there, um, there's a guy who uh, is out in Wisconsin who believes in uh, reviving a, or, or starting a kind of forest-based uh, agriculture or silviculture, as he calls it, that uh, would uh, allow us to grow food in a m much less intrusive uh, uh, mark on the landscape and to produce a lot of it in quantity. Um, and to do it in a very different way than Agribiz. Uh, two of the stranger characters in there, one was uh, a character who is a white nationalist who um, has been corresponding with me for many years. Um, he's not a terrible person, but, you know, he represents a, uh, a philosophy and, and a body of ideas which a lot of people find repellent. Uh, but I felt that it was important to include him in the book so people understood what his thinking process was and, and what he was, uh, you know, what he represented. And I, I didn't want to just sweep that under the rug. Um, similarly, another character who I came to know was uh, uh, a, uh, a black man about uh, 55 who lives in, he's kind of a, an intellectual, uh, and he lives in the Baltimore ghetto, but he's an extremely resourceful and also a very solitary figure in that in that particular world, and I thought that he was kind of a uh, he was a very interesting character. I wanted to write about his struggles and what brought him to the place that he's in. So th that was the range of people who were in there, and and uh, it'll be interesting to find out what people think of those portraits. I, I haven't really gotten much feedback uh, from this book. It's only been out about a week or ten days. And one of the things that happened in the USA, perhaps in, in Britain too, in the last 20 years, is that the whole book reviewing uh, um, institution just died. Uh, you know, the newspapers no longer pay people to write about books and talk about books. And... Um, the you know everybody who used to do that the magazines the radio stations they just don't do it anymore so 
there's there's almost no reaction once it once a book is thrown out there in the the arena, it kind of lands with a thud, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know unless unless uh, you know unless you're a celebrity or something, and maybe people talk about it then, but. So that whole uh, scene is kind of weird, and uh, I don't really know what people think about this. So uh, I guess I'll hang around and wait. Maybe a few podcasters will tell me. So the the, the book lands in the the arena with a thud. There's a cloud of dust, and there isn't even anyone there to do a thumbs down. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's like that old joke about uh, you know if if Helen Keller walked through the forest and the tree fell down, did you know? Did anybody hear it? <laughs> exactly. Well, in any event. Uh, the book, your new one, is entitled Living in the Long Emergency, Global Crisis, The Failure, Failure of the Futurists and the Early Adapters Who Are Showing Us the Way Forward. Before we sign off, tell listeners about your website. Uh, there they can also find details of all your other books, your podcast, and of course your blog, uh, Clusterfuck Nation. Yeah, well, I am at uh, www.kunstler.com. That is K-U-N-S-T-L-E-R.com. My blog, Clusterfuck Nation, comes out twice a week. It's published uh, on Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern USA time and Fridays at the same time. It, it, it's always up, come hell or high water. And my podcast comes out about every three weeks or so, and it's called The Kunstler Cast, and it's there on iTunes if you want to go grab it. And that's what I do. And you know, I also publish books now and again every couple of years. So that's that's my vocation and that's my little world. Splendid. Well, James, thanks for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Greg. <laughs>